Welcome to The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want the truth about having a healthy, happy, strong body. Remember, your body was meant to move. Now here's your host, Stephen Sashen. Maybe everything I've ever said about minimalist footwear or natural movement or barefoot running is wrong, and if you try any of those things, you're going to get hurt. Let's find out on today's episode of The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it is to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting with the feet first, because those things are your foundation. We're going to break down the mythology, the propaganda, sometimes the outright lies that people have told you about what it takes to run and walk and dance and play and lift and do whatever it is you like to do happily and enjoyably and effectively and efficiently. I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host for The Movement Movement podcast. Obviously, you know what to do if you're interested and like what we're doing here, subscribe and like and share and do all the rest. Just go to jointhemovementmovement.com to do all those things and find all the other places you can interact with this podcast, the video version, the audio version, etc., etc. As I like to say, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let's jump in. I am really thrilled to be here with my friend Jonathan Beverly. I don't like doing intros because it always sounds stilted. So why don't you tell people who you are and what you do and how you got here, and then we'll jump into you trying to prove that everything I've ever said is wrong. (laughs) Excellent. So I'm Jonathan Beverly. I was a longtime editor of Running Times Magazine, Worked as shoe editor for Runner's World, which I'm sure you would have some <laughs> some insight no, no, thoughts my, about. My only thing about my only thing. Well, there's two things about that. One is Runner's World did the complete guide to barefoot and minimalist running yes, by Scott and, Douglas, my and friend. did did yes. not include me, okay, at all. Even though I had sold more barefoot running products than anybody else, you left before there was a. I won't mention his name. There was someone who was the president of Rodale, the the owner of that magazine, who it turns out was uh, my best friend from college. Excellent. And I said, can you look into why we weren't included? And he called me a couple of days later and says, well, you've never advertised with us. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, interesting. So interesting. Anyway, so I thought that so, was an interesting oversight. So after writing Times and Writer's World, I spent two years freelance writing and wrote two books, one, yep. of, one of which is called Your Best Stride. Which I'm glad you did that. I meant to bring a copy, but I forgot because uh, my wife and I just got back from an anniversary vacation and my brain still isn't working. So, <laughs> And we'll talk Excellent. more about what's in there too. And the second <clears throat> is called Run Strong, Stay Hungry, which is about how to stay healthy and motivated throughout life. Um, I interviewed 50 people who had started as youth and are still competing in their 60s and 70s Interesting. and came up with nine principles. Interesting. So I don't know that book. So I'm looking forward to hearing that one. I'm very curious how much of this is something that is something people can apply versus something that's just kind of hindsight bias. And that's just the way people are. Exactly. You want to jump into that? Let's jump into that. Let me tell you first what I'm doing now is I'm now editor of Podium Runner, podiumrunner.com, which which has a similar similar ethos as as running times. The, The goal is to help people enjoy running and run better for life. And so we go beyond beyond the tips, beyond the basic information, answer why, make you think. Well, so I want to ask a question that I've I've wondered quite a bit and I'm probably not the only one, but I but many people probably haven't verbalized this question. What does an editor actually do? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. Do it's a ever, really good do, question. Do you, do you, you know, know. No, I'll, I'll give you, I, I, I know, but it's, it's not what you think. Yes, we do spend time making sure that all the grammar is correct. Right. We do make sure punctuation, but when I my, my standard answer to that is an editor says no a lot. Okay. Because an editor says, you know, you, you get 20 queries a day from somebody says, I want you to tell my product. Right. I want 
to write for you and it's going to be about me, how me, to lose weight or me, me, or it's me, 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 yeah, me yeah. or it's, and so an editor, an editor knows right. who your audience is, what they're interested in, respects them and gives them material that, that they're going to be interested in. It's going to help them. So, so, and, and then I do a lot of crafting. I, I'm a writer originally, as right. you can tell. So I, I tend, I tend, I'd rather work with an expert and help craft it and make it readable right then then have a, a, well, a writer so then here's the other thing that i always find interesting looking at a magazine like runners world or running times they're often kind of cosmopolitan-esque in that it's variations of the same thing over and over and over or which is only kind of effective for either people who don't take any action or if there's enough audience turnover that you need to tell that same story because someone new is coming into the fold. But talk to me about what it is to edit a magazine or edit anything where you have this continuous need for content. And there's probably a finite number of things to say. Right. I try. I've been in the sport since 1977. I've been an editor since 2000. I still try to have every story have something in it that I'm interested in. Right. So yes, you're right. There, there's only so much to say, but there are new studies all the time. There are new angles for looking at things. There are, are new, new uh, stories to tell yeah, as far as people and, and how, how they interact with it. Now, the, the, that which gets repetitive often is the, the, the fundamentals. And right. people need to be reminded. I mean, it's, it's right. like it's like the, the preacher. <laughs> he, t- he tells you what the same thing every... What are you for? <laughs> Jeez, man. <laughs> he tells you the, the prophet, you know. Right. He, he, he says, repent <laughs> right. every single day. <laughs> and That's people still need it. <laughs> yeah, actually, there's someone who, did, who left a review of this podcast and said, uh, it's really great, but sometimes a little repetitive, which I get. I mean, because, you know, the message is very very straightforward. I like to say we're trying to make natural movement the obvious better healthy choice the way natural food currently is or we call it a movement movement because it's a movement about movement. So I say those things quite a bit but it, and it is partly because we're trying to really inculcate thank you SATs yeah. people with you know with these these really simple ideas and repetition is necessary to a certain extent and there's only so much I'm going to say. I mean bodies work if you let them work. So, and I imagine that, I mean, in this book and in the other book, a lot of those fundamentals or a lot of those sort of key, let's call them for lack of a better term, repetitive stories are things that you've addressed as well. I mean, I know that to a certain extent. Absolutely. In fact, you just summarized your best stride, Thank you. which is bodies work, right? Your body knows how to run better than you do. The problem is, okay, you're compromised. Most of us are compromised. Got it. So this is where we start to argue. <laughs> so let's let's back up to what... Oh, you know what? I totally forgot to do this, and I didn't even warn you. So I'm going to jump into something that we normally do at the very beginning that I completely forgot about. Since it's the movement movement, I sometimes like... I always like to start with a movement of some sort. Is okay. there anything that you can think of totally on the spot? So I know I'm putting a lot of pressure on you. Something that people could either do... While they're listening, so maybe while they're sitting, while they're walking, while they're driving the car, something or something they could do when they get home, some movement, something that you would want to share to give people some experience that you think might be interesting. Absolutely. Oh, cool. So especially something you can do anywhere, anytime, unless you have shoes that are too tight, which is the short foot exercise. Short foot exercise, which I'm sure has been discussed on this Although so only times. only once actually, okay. I only, because I I didn't want to have you know back to the repetitive thing right. of cosmopolitan. Right. I didn't want to have to find nine different ways of describing how to do the short foot exercise. And I was actually thinking about this um, this morning. So now's I think a perfect time to introduce it again. So why don't right. you do it the way you teach it, okay, or you share it? 
So if you're sitting or standing, you first get so so you your your weight is equally on your on your, the heel and the ball of your foot. So right. feet flat on the ground. Feet flat on the ground, equal distributive weight. Now, mm-hmm. without curling your toes or lifting your toes, try to pull the ball of your foot towards your heel. What you'll find is it arches up. So what's happening to shorten your foot? You're lifting up the arch. And, and so feel that and then try to, once you've lifted it, again, try to relax your toes, hold in that position. And the only thing you feel is, is the, the tendons and the intrinsic muscles holding up the arch. Do you want to say anything about cramping? <laughs> okay. And only, it's only relax, happening let them out. Okay. Cramping, you, you may be doing a little bit too much, t- do intensely to start. Well, there's two things for me. I've also got a spinal injury. And okay. so when I do certain things with my feet, they cramp up and they don't want to un- okay. undo themselves. So, okay, now okay. I got it back. Okay. And and when you're sitting, it's hard to do this, but you know, when you're standing, once you get in that position, again, try to try to relax and yep. then, and then put, keep the weight there again on all the whole tripod. Yep. So, so you, and, and you feel the stability of that and you feel where, where, and you're not rolling inward anymore. You're, you're, you're holding yourself up and you have, you have balance. And this is something you can do while you're sitting, while you're standing, while you're doing pretty much anything. This is something I actually do this whenever I'm in the kitchen, not constantly, obviously, mm-hmm. but whenever I think to do it, if I'm cooking or cleaning up, I'm usually the one cooking. Lane is the one cleaning up. Uh, when I'm brushing my teeth, I do this. Yes. You can, you can even do it without your feet on the ground, which is kind of the advanced version in my brain. It's like, can you really do it without any of that pressure on your feet? And it's not, there's some people who like to think that you can do some sort of strengthening exercises and that's what you need to do before you run naturally, let's say. And I like to say there's strengthening is great, but there's nothing that's going to be the same as what happens when you actually go out and start walking or running or whatever it is. In fact, do you know about Sarah Ridge's study? And Sarah is going to be on the podcast in a little while. Do you know her study about foot strengthening exercises versus walking in a minimal shoe? Yes. Go ahead. (laughs) Well, the gist of it is that you get the same benefits in, in terms of building intrinsic and extrinsic foot muscle strength by just walking in a truly minimal shoe as you do from doing the exercises. That doesn't mean don't do the exercises. That means these things really can work together. I don't want to say hand in hand, but there's no good analogy. There's no good foot in foot thing. And in fact, Sarah concedes that one thing they didn't do was think to study a group that did both the foot strengthening and the walking, which seems intuitively that that should make a make a difference in being statistically and, different and this is what i think of what i feel and I'm, I'm like you i do it at my desk i do it while i'm driving and i and i think it's almost more cueing awareness mm-hmm. proprioceptive so that when you do start walking barefoot or in minimalist shoes <laughs> you can you, feel that you feel where, where where how it's supposed to be balancing right. you so back to the point where uh you're going to try and argue with me okay so you think that natural is natural except that we're compromised and therefore natural is not possible until we decompromise ourselves. or what does it mean that we're compromised if the idea that natural is inherently better well why do people overstride are you asking me yeah. Do you want my opinion? Yeah. I would say that it's fundamentally because you're wearing footwear that makes that easier to do than not do. So if, oh, wait, I'm going to grab something. Okay. So 
Okay. So for people who are listening, I have a foot skeleton in my hand. So if you're, I don't know if I can show this if you're watching, if you're naturally going to run and you're going to land, let's say on your forefoot, which I can't demonstrate perfectly <laughs> with this because it doesn't bend quite the way I want. But if you're going to do that, it's possible and often the case that as your foot is coming down the ground to land, to touch first on your forefoot, your heel is barely skating across the ground. You're very, it's, you know, maybe quarter inch, half an inch off the ground before your foot actually contacts the ground. If you then suddenly stick something that's a half an inch or three quarters of an inch underneath your heel, you're going to bump into that with your foot in front of your body because that's just, you're about to do your natural gait and then you got something in the way of it. So my contention is that that's one of the fundamental reasons we overstride is we put on some shoe that interferes with a natural gait and then we're actually also taught that that's what you're supposed to do anyway. So now you're doing this thing that someone in the running shoe store told you is what you're supposed to do. And so you're not going to think to try and do it differently. And in fact, with some shoes, it's practically impossible to midfoot or forefoot strike because the heel's so damn high and it gets in your way. Even if you tried to land on your midfoot underneath your center of mass, you just couldn't do it. That's my contention. Okay. And I don't should, disagree with that. Should I leave, should I give you the foot? No, because right. I'm, I'm going to go someplace else. I'm going to go. <laughs> awesome. When I started the research for this book was after the fall of minimalism. And I had bought into minimalism. The fall of minimalism. The fall of minimalism. I'm putting air quotes around air, fall. Air quotes. Very good. It didn't right, really, because it didn't really, it didn't really fall the way people think. No. It, well, it stopped climbing. It How stopped, it stopped an astronomic climb. It's, right. The astronomic climb flattened right. out for right. a while. Right. And there were, over six months' time, a study every other week that would say it actually doesn't make you more efficient. It, 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 Pause. No one in the barefoot community ever said that it did. I know. I know. It's all hand I know. I know. But, but okay. I'm saying as, as editor and seeing all this yeah. and, and, and having told people for a couple of years that, yeah, this is what you need to do. Right. The, the feeling was, well, what is true? What, what do we really know? Okay. So I went and talked to Jay Dasari and Simon Bartold and Ben O'Nig and... Andrew Castor and everybody I could the gang. The, the, everybody from coaches to right. podiatrists, Rob Canonello and Paul Langer and uh, <laughs> and said, What do we agree on? And what they all agreed on was your hips are basically shut down. You you, you have no proprioception in your hips, you have your balance is out of whack, your hip flexors are too tight, you have an anterior pelvic tilt, which means that your your tip forward, mm -hmm. which lengthens your hamstrings, turns off your glutes, and it uh, doesn't allow you to stride behind your body. So if if you're this way and you got this, and if you can't go this, if you right. can't land and push, right. if, if, if you, go watch Kipchoge, the video. Every, everybody right now can see Kipchoge's yeah. running. Yeah, and, yeah. and he lands and he drives back. He has a, he has a, a nine foot stride, but none of it is in front of his body. All, if you can't him. do that, if your hips are compromised such as you can't do that, what are you going to do? How are you going to move? You got to reach forward, land and pull back to zero. Well, see, I, if I'm you not, don't have any hip extension. Absolutely. So, well, two things. I'm not disagreeing with that. I would argue that that pattern was engendered by the footwear first rather than, rather than the sitting. Uh, the, 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 most, yeah. most of these guys, just Dashari and those blame Say that sitting. it's all sitting. Because, I, I, you know, the reason that I say this, if you look at kids, obviously, little kids before they've gotten in shoes, yeah. they don't do that. But they, that's before they've also been sitting in school. I mean, we, we, we could argue this all day, but I think no, probably, they probably all, all contribute. It's, it's an interesting point, but I'm also thinking about the anterior pelvic tilt thing. Yeah. Because sprinters actually have anterior pelvic tilt. Okay. And it's valuable as a sprinter for, I mean, if you look at, if you take a look at uh, Usain Bolt, I mean, that guy, he's, you know, he's got this crazy arch and crazy anterior pelvic tilt. And so. Then it's all, a, and he paws the ground too, right? Oh, absolutely not. No? No, no, no. 
he's hitting the ground like you know like all sprinters you know, yes. foot barely in front of your center of mass and it's and all back, back. it's okay. all driving back okay. people think when they see sprinters and they see the really high knee lift and the the foot coming out and then the way the foot comes the leg comes down basically straight they think of it like it's pawing but it's a, it's absolutely not okay so so but the tilt is not bad in a sprinter no so my my contention there is anterior pelvic tilt is not inherently bad it's if your glutes aren't working, if your hamstrings aren't working, that's a different story. What's interesting about you saying that is I've been at a number of conferences, let's say, where there are physical therapists and researchers who are trying to say, here's what causes running problems and here's what cures them. And the one thing they all agree on is almost everyone who walks into their clinic, they have no glute medius or glute maximus strength, mostly Absolutely. glute medius. Absolutely. And when I saw Bill Sands, uh, after he was the head of uh, biomechanics of the U.S. Olympic Committee, the one thing he did when you came into his lab is he had to do clams. He had to do things to work on your glute medius because yeah. he saw almost universally. I was on the track last weekend and there was a woman who with her coach and she was doing like 400 meter repeats and she was fast, but uh, there was something about her. I just couldn't see what it was from the angle I was at. And then I got behind her and when she was running, her knees were bumping into each other and mm -hmm. her feet were like way out. She has no, medius she has no glute medius yeah. strength. Yeah. And so, so yeah. You're compromised. I mean, yeah, yeah. if you have somebody who, who doesn't have glute medius strength or even glute max and doesn't right. have hip extension, they're going to have right. trouble. Yes. It, 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 their stride is compromised, and, it, it, and it's not natural. They can't, Correct. They can't just go out and run, and everything's going to be perfect. Another way you're compromised okay. is yes, this. Yeah, the, just, the whole the uh, shoulders, uh, shoulders for, 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 in. in forward, in interior rotation right. of the shoulders, right. hunched forward, right. neck forward. Which again throws all the balance off mm -hmm. and, and ends up, you know, even yeah, this is even thinking. high school kids. I've got, you know, I've got 14 year old girls that the, their arms never go behind their body. If your arm doesn't go behind your body, your leg doesn't I, go I behind your body. I think you need body. to clarify what you mean when you say you have 14 year old girls. I think that, um... <laughs> As a coach, I was a cross country coach for, <laughs> for, uh, for 15 years. Sorry. Okay, got it, got it. Yes. Uh, you no longer have them in any location. No, no, they're no, on no, their no, own. No. They've exactly. graduated. Okay, no, they're graduated. Just, just want to be clear. College, gotta, uh, gotta be and, and they've got that much better posture now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. So I was an all American gymnast way back when. And so that interior rotation, the overdeveloped pecs, uh, is something that's actually the most important strength in gymnastics. I like to say that I spent 30 years trying to get the gymnast out of my body. Mm. And I'm still, it's still something I pay attention to. Yeah. It's just to kind of get things yeah. back yeah. in place. Yeah. But uh, which is again, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like cues typically don't work. You, your body has to, has to, has to learn how to run itself. And again, she was a part of it. Right. But, but I think, I think some of the steps are to learn how to feel your hips Right. Learn how to rotate your hips and feel that balance. Get back to a natural balance, and that's a proprioceptive thing. But right. then, but then often, loosen your hip flexors, strengthen your glutes, get your shoulders back, which sometimes require release release work because you can't. I mean, if it's right. if it's if it if it's work for you to stand this way, yeah, it's really hard to run that way. So, so you need to do some of those, all those things. Then. It's not, okay, now I'm going to think about landing on my forefoot and taking a faster cadence. Then you go out and you shake things up. You run barefoot. Mm -hmm. You run in, in metamol shoes. So, and, but, but once you have, once you've gotten your body to the idea of like, okay, I, I don't have to move this way. And, and I'm also talking mostly to runners who have been running for a while. Right. And so they also have ingrained patterns. They have, yeah, the, the neuromuscular. Well, so here, so here's, here's where we're going with this. Um, I, I agree with all the, that all of those things are things. Yeah. My question is, do you need to resolve those first or can you, I guess there's a couple parts to this. 
One is you need to resolve those first before you can start experimenting with natural movement, which we can call it barefoot for the fun of it. But what we, right. when we say natural movement, we mean things like that you're not overstriding. You're not reaching your foot out too far in front of your center of mass. You're, uh, I'll ask you, what, what do you characterize as the components of natural movement or natural running? Your, your balanced over your feet. Okay. Considering that when you're running, you're basically hopping from foot to foot, what does that mean to be balanced over your feet? I guess that mostly that you're not you're not reaching in front of you okay and and colliding with the ground and then relying on a device a shoe or something to keep yourself you, which, your, your which, foot is interacting with the ground well which doesn't yeah cuz the shoe doesn't actually do that one thing that occurs well, to me well the shoe shoe Yes. Well, uh, one thing that occurs to me that might... Uh, deadens. Deadens. Appropriate well, yeah, yeah. Okay. But this might fit in with ballast over your feet. Okay. One thing, if you've got your... If your glutes aren't functioning properly, when you land, your uh, femur is and your thigh is going to internally rotate. Your knees could point in. So that's not balanced over your feet. That's right. not a position that's balanced. So having your the alignment of your your ankle, your knee, your hip be right. kind of right, which proper. Which, in turn, reduces ground contact time. Correct. And over-rotation and some of these things that, that cause you... Okay. To, to, yeah. So then the magic question is, are these things that you need to correct in... Adv- I guess there's, again, three parts. Right. Do you need to correct it in advance versus is it something that you can do simultaneously and is there possibly any benefit from trying to work on whatever natural movement is, let's say barefoot running for the sake yes. of argument, while doing this? Or even more, have you seen or do you think it's possible in some or all cases for just trying to run naturally? And again, let's use barefoot as an example. Have you seen that make corrections so that you don't need to do some supplementary exercises to try and make all this happen? I would say absolutely, and, and I argue this, all these things ideally help them simultaneously okay. that they're not in fact it, it's very hard to make one of them happen i mean it's very hard to to run with faster cadence if you don't work on balance and hip extension and and go to a nat- more natural shoe right, right. <laughs> I mean, because because if you're if you're reaching and trying to pull through you, you can't do that faster <laughs> right so i mean it has to be a pitter patter it has to be it has to be light it has to be but but you can work on cadence and all the things happen together. So yes, absolutely. You say barefoot running is is one of the, the steps that helps cue you. Can you do it just with that? Ben Onig would say about 20 to 30 percent. 20 can do it. Can do it just it. with changing footwear. Got it. That, that means 80 percent can't, you know, or 70 to 80 percent. And have to, have to do something else. Have to have proprioceptive change. Have to have a foot strength change, which is another another way we're compromised. Well, is that we, we, we've lost our foot strength because we haven't used them. Right, but again, but like I'll say that you, that you can do all the strengthening you want, but the thing that's going to do the most is by actually doing it. It's right. like there's nothing, there's right. no amount of lifting that's going to make it so that you can go out and start running or whatever the right. you know, thing is. So there's Because so, you can't integrate it. Well, you, you can't integrate. You're also just not going to get the same kind of forces. This is, this is actually the big argument in sprinting coaching is what's the value of the weight room? Because there's nothing you can do in the weight room that's actually going to simulate what you do when you're sprinting. And uh, there's things that are, that are kind of helpful. There's some carryover. Not as much as people think, so it's a, that's a big argument. There's, you know, if you're, if you think about just um, the amount of loading you get on your calf, there's no amount of calf raises that you're going to do that are going to be the same as the amount of force you put on when you're running. So it may be useful. It's definitely useful to do strengthening exercises. And what's going to be the biggest, uh, the best exercise you're going to do is the thing you're doing: is running, walking, hiking, etc. Absolutely. So 
so and, and just running more. Yeah, it's going to make well, you more efficient. Absolutely. Because, yeah. Well, so backing up to Benno's thing, is there any research backing that up? Is that his theory? I haven't no, had him I, on here. I think he's. I think he's got research. He doesn't say things without without research. But <laughs> he, he says, but, but he does extrapolate. I think. Right. I think maybe what he's what. If I think about the conversation, I, I, one of the best best days of my life was uh, on, on old German hotel on Lake Zurich with Benno Nick, uh, <laughs> and just yeah. listening to him talk. You know, and he's like, he got calls. It's like, no, you have all the time you want. Uh, nice. <laughs> so, but he he, the twenty thirty percent is basically the what he says responders to almost any any hmm. intervention hmm. that the uh, that that the actual that they can respond they have enough proprioception they have enough oh. uh, awareness got it to respond got it so that's an intriguing thing because i i think that as i'm sitting here pondering i'm just thinking about the experience that i've had <clears throat> with the thousands of people who've gotten a pair of zero shoes and what they've reported and i i'm iffy about that for one specific reason the idea that you have a people definitely have propensities for things. Some people are better at certain things than others. Some mm -hmm. people have better proprioceptive skills than others. They know where their body is in space better than others. Some people are better at trying new movement patterns than others. But I, my hunch is that that idea that it's only twenty to thirty percent who could make those changes naturally, uh, just by taking off their shoes and going for a run, for example, is off based on time. That if you gave people more time, the people who are not as high responders, who don't have the innate skill set, would do better. So there's some people that I've met who, if you say go out and you know run, but if it hurts, stop, they don't know if it hurts. They literally can't feel it. Yeah. I've seen people finish a barefoot run on the grass and go, wow, that was great. And their feet are all bloody because <laughs> they were pawing at the ground and doing these things that were bad. And they just literally can't feel because their brain has stopped feeling because the they, they weren't giving their brain any feedback. So your brain just shuts down and says, oh, you're not paying attention? Okay, I'm out. So my suspicion is that, and what I say to those people is walk around barefoot more until you get the neural pathways firing again, and then you move from there. So now we're on to people who can feel things but not, might not have great proprioceptive skills. Yeah. But over time, you know, you're going to get enough feedback that you're going to start, that many people, not all, but I would say that more people than that 20%, 30% will figure out that something feels off or something doesn't, or it still hurts yeah. in some way, yeah. and they'll, they'll they'll develop slightly better proprioceptive skills. So you don't need to be a gymnast to know how to do a double twisting backflip when you're running. There's it's a limited set of information. Right. So, so but I don't, do you I, feel? I, I guess I I agree with you. I'm thinking about my experience and and some again. What is that? Immediately, everybody can take off the shoes and start walking around. They should, right. I mean, unless you, unless you really are crippled in some way. Yeah, yeah. but but. And and also then the step of that I think is you know, again one of the one of the concurrent steps that happens is is learning the the, the proprioceptive of good posture and, and hip rotation and and that's a lot easier again while you're barefoot right. minimal shoes I mean right. I, even for, for me it's like you know standing the national anthem a high school basketball game in minimalist shoes you can really work on your posture. <laughs> it's a little thing. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, or, you know, again, try to stand more often or standing, you know, standing in a meeting in the back of a meeting and, and realize how, how, how out of line, how, you know, how you're terrible lumber, lumber curve and your, and your interior tilt. And, and, but, but yeah. So, so do you think you need, 
I, I think what people felt was it's a magic thing. You put on the minimal shoes or you go barefoot and it's going to happen anyway. It still needs to be purposeful. You need to be aware. You need to start thinking about it a little bit. Yeah. Not, 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 not prescriptive way. Yeah. Yeah. But more just an awareness way. Yeah. You, well, it, it's a, I think it's a bit of a push me pull you because on the one hand, once you do take off your shoes, for example, you are, forced to have in a way forced to have a little more awareness because you're getting more feedback you're getting more sensations unless you're again you know totally shut down to that so you're you're getting more and what happens for many people actually is they need to their brain needs to start filtering out the extraneous information this is the fundamental thing that brains do is they Mm -hmm. shut things out so we only get you know little bits Uh, otherwise it would be way too overwhelming and i think there's some of that that happens i think that anybody if they I think anyone can take off their shoes and start walking. I think anyone can take off their shoes and start running too if the amount of running you start with is like 20 seconds. If it's like a really finite amount. And ideally, frankly, if you don't have any idea about what you're supposed to do. If you don't, if you haven't already read that you're supposed to run at a particular cadence or you're supposed to land on your forefoot or your midfoot or whatever it is, I think if people were complete blank slates, it would be a piece of cake. And the reason that I say this is, when in Bill Sands lab, we did a little pilot study where we took people and then we brought them in. They had only been running in shoes and we had them run in shoes and then barefoot and then in a pair of our sandals and in a pair of five fingers and in no particular order. And 90% of them, as soon as they took off their shoes, ran better. And we were having them run for, I don't know, it was a little while. It certainly wasn't 20 seconds. It was more than that. And there was one or two people in the pilot study who still overstrode and heel striked, heel striked, heel struck, landed on their heels for heels. Yeah, whatever that is. But what was also interesting is, is I was able to give them like 20 seconds of corrections and they usually picked up and and it was different because they knew something was wrong, but they just didn't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So, so just getting the feedback, I think can take you pretty far down that path. Uh, I'm not suggesting that it's the only thing that adding other things can't be helpful, but I think people do minimize how well our brains are designed to make us stop doing things that are unpleasant yeah. and find a way of doing something that yeah. feels better. And and perhaps the only thing the other things do is speed up the process. Some. I, mean, I think if, that's if, it. If, if, if your hips are too tight and your glutes are, are shut down, eventually you'll, you you know, if you, if you work, I mean, it could take a long time. Yeah, it could take to, a while. Well, to, and, but to, to get, to get to a point where it's comfortable and, and people aren't willing to give up. They're, they're well, 40 miles a week. You know? Well, the other one I get is, um, I've got a race in a week. Do you think I can switch to your shoes and run right, that race? Right, like, right, whoa, right. whoa, chill out. And my answer is, I have no idea. Maybe you can. Pro- yeah, probably, probably not. not. Right. But but the point is that people want to have a prescription for how long it's going to take to transition. Right. And it, it's an individual thing. Or they there's another version of that that popped into my head. Uh, they want to know how long it's going to take. They want to know if there's a specific thing to do. There's so much individual variation. And my answer is is you know you can't you can't speed up the process it'll take as long as it takes no more no less and you don't know what it's going to be and and, you know enjoy the process oh the other one is sort of like when people say well i don't want to go through that well that's kind of like saying like you had your arm in a cast and we take the cast off and you go well i don't want to do anything to have to get it back to working again i mean that would take effort it's like well why wouldn't you you know you would never think to not start using your arm again why would you not want to spend the relatively small amount of time that it takes, even if it takes a year or two, let's say, to get your body working naturally, because then that's going to support you and help you for the rest of your life. And so I find 
that argument very confusing, especially because it's pretty effortless. This is not like you've got to go to the gym three right. times a week and lift right. for a couple hours. This right. is live your life right. with some minor changes and it'll adapt, you know, probably quicker than you think. Yeah. Yeah. So, and without, again, without effortless, without concentrated thinking about where every limb is going to be. Right. Uh, Bobby McGee here from Boulder. Yeah. His best story he said was that about the guru where the American came and said, you know, how long will it take to enlightenment? And the guru says five years. And the American says, what if I try really hard? <laughs> Well, it'll take 10 years. Yeah. Right. Well, there's, <laughs> so. there, there's another Indian story, uh, a guy, he's um, walking by this farm and he sees a farmer. He yells at the farmer, hey, farmer, how long till I get to Bombay? And the farmer looks at him and then just goes back to farming. And the guy yells again, farmer, how long till I get to Bombay? And the farmer looks at him and then he starts farming again. <laughs> and the guy goes, ah, and just starts walking away. And the farmer yells, three hours. And the guy says, what? I asked you two times how long to Bombay and you wouldn't answer me. Why do you answer me now? He goes, well, I didn't know how fast you walked. And so, yeah, yeah, we, I mean, we're wired. We to want to know, here's the thing that gets us to what we want. And it's just rarely that simple. But what's interesting to me is it's much more interesting than that. I mean, for me, who never liked running, I was a sprinter, but who never liked running, I only liked it when I took off my shoes because it was so fascinating. And to experiment and to see what things felt like, uh, to pick up my cadence or to slow down my cadence, yeah. to land on different parts of my feet, to run faster, to run slower, to do different things with my arms. I mean, it was just really, really, and, and continues to be fascinating because there's not an answer that I then stick with for every situation and how my body feels that day. And right, right. So, all right. Which is a little bit transition to my second book. Perfect. Run Strong, Stay Hungry, because... Uh, again, interviewing these 50 people, I expected I'd get all these training logs. And I'd come up with, you know, 20% reduction every decade. And <laughs> right. I didn't get any of that. Yeah. I, I, well, I ended up with, for nine principles, three of them are training and six are psychological. You know, dealing, dealing with all. But, but the training ones are consistency, variety, and run by feel, which is what we're talking about here. And that's it. I mean, across the board, people who have survived and adapted are ones who learn how to pay attention to their body. Right. And had they identified that, or did you kind of pull that out from their stories? Pulled it out from their stories. Um, I didn't. I, I, I had people. The interview method was start from the beginning. You know, I, you know, I was twelve years old, and I went out for cross country, and just tell me your story. Right. Um, and and off. And at some point, it would come out that yeah, you know, I, what I do is, and often it was a transition. I mean, mm. as they aged, but you know, I I go out and. I wait and see what, what this, you know, I'm, I'm a chef. I, I taste, I taste this too. Oh, and I, I see, that. do I need, do I need more salt? You know, if I need more salt, I'll go and do some hill work. <laughs> I just read, I was just reading a thing about strength training that's related to this. That's very interesting that, um, people who they varied what their what they did on a daily basis based on bar speed. So imagine doing a bench press mm. and what they're measuring is, you know, you do the first one as fast as you can, just on the, the pushing part, you control all the way down, but you go as fast as you can when you're pushing. And when the bar speed drops by some amount, that's when you're done. And what they found is that that was a really, really good gauge where it allowed people to kind of work by feel, mm. but also have some data to know, um, you know, because sometimes you feel like crap and you're doing really well, yeah, and sometimes yeah. the other way around. Yeah. But bar speed apparently is a really good uh, measure of how good you're actually doing and uh, gives you that feedback in real time. I found it totally fascinating. I haven't bought the various devices to measure bar speed yet, but I'm really wanting to. And yeah. I wonder if there's... Just anecdotally, cadence is a little bit that way. I find that if if 
if you're totally clip, clipping along, yeah, uh, on on recovery days, I can I can be one sixty five, you know, <laughs> right. and, and but that's that's just what feels right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and then when you start, but I I I love that because so many people they want to again have a prescription for what to do and yeah. and will beat themselves up if it's one of those days Absolutely. where it's just not there. Yeah, yeah, you know? and and so that you know that solves all the problems of aging. Because if, if, you know, how, how long do you have to take off recovery until you're ready to run hard again, you know, and then how fast do you run for a tempo run? What feels right for right. a tempo run? And, and if that's a minute slower than it was when you were 20, it's still right. And it still feels right. And also it helps with the psychological too, because if you're not comparing and measuring and trying to keep and it, up. And, and it, it can change during the run. I mean, yeah. I, again, I'm extrapolating not as a distant runner, but right. I, I just, a couple of days ago or a couple of weeks ago on the track, um, I was completely exhausted. And during warmups, I just was thinking, well, I'm just going to do some warmups and go home. And by the time I was done with warmups, I was just feeling good. Absolutely. And I had a whole workout. Yeah. yeah that's why you, you can't decide when, while all. you're sitting at your, at your desk, you got, you got to go out and, and get moving and, and well, this, your body will tell you. Well, this, this is the joke I have with my training partners is we show up and we finish warming up and go, now what? Because we had ideas walking in, but we just don't pay any attention to those until we get there. It's like, do I feel like I'm ready to run fast or do I want to do a strength training hill workout or something that's, uh, or I call that poor man strength training. And, uh, um, uh, it's, it's interesting. And, and what's fascinating hearing you say it is, I had to do this because I was getting older. Mm-hmm. I couldn't rely on some prescriptive thing because exactly. it just did not work. Exactly, and it's it's different for each person, mm-hmm. and it's nonlinear with yourself, as you said. I mean, it, I feel like in my experience and people I interviewed that you'll age like six months very quickly. Sometimes <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it might be you know when my mother and father died within one year or something, things like that. But, but, right. but it, it shows up and you're and you can't say, okay, well, last year I only slowed down 30 seconds, you know, this year I, I have a minute, so I, I must be doing something so, wrong. So as a guy who runs distance, <clears throat> do you have an, an analog to what we have as sprinters, which is basically there's like four fundamental workouts that I do. So it's, uh, and I'm not going to get into what they are, yeah. but on a daily basis, when at the end of that warm up, it's like I'm drawing from one of those four basic things. And maybe there's Absolutely. a couple of variations. Do you have a similar thing? That Absolutely. You, so what does that look like as a distance runner? So distance runner, you have, you know, just miles getting in, getting in volume, right? right? And so your daily run, then you have, um, work, which increasingly is shown as important is, is at tempo threshold pace, which is a pace that is fast, but not, it's still fun. Got it. So, um, you know, the, the Kenyans talk about uh, being late for school, and, and you still want to, <laughs> you want it, but seriously, uh, you, no, you, I love you, that. you have to focus. It's, it's fast enough that you have to focus a little bit, but you still get there, and you can sit down, and you know, you, you, you're, right. you're, you're ready for school, um, and, and that's how you describe it for for like high schoolers too. It's like, okay, I, I'm I'm moving. But but I got this, you know. I'm, I'm breathing hard, but I could keep going for an hour at this pace. I like that. Um, what else? So that's very important. Um, then there's pure speed, which mm-hmm. is stuff you do. Uh, well, <laughs> I like when distance runners talk about speed, and then I hear the numbers like, oh, yeah. Okay. But, but, but again, it's all perception. It, right. it, it, it's just how fast how fast can you turn it over? I mean, and ideally, right. the, the the sort of the, the gold standard of this is as steep as hill as you can find. Eight to ten seconds, all out. Just every every fiber, every neuromuscular connection. Um, you do that for six to ten times, and, and you're, you're done. Got, yeah, you're done. You're done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's um, VO2 max work, which is like five k pace, and, and this is yeah, this is getting into where after ninety seconds, you're, you're looking forward to the finish, um, <laughs> and then you stop and you rest 
for about equal time, and you go again. And, oh, interesting. And, and that's working on your aerobic system maximum so, oxygen. So if you're doing that, so, what? So um, how long? Are you, how long are you doing the on intervals for? I mean, is it, you, you end up. You end up about three miles. It depends on who you are, where you are in training, but sure. yes, yeah, say say one and a half to three miles on hard work oh, wow. at so yeah. With <laughs> and sometimes you can do it like like ninety seconds on like or you can work up to a mile, like five five six minutes. On. Interesting. Um, so yeah, um, and you can use that very sparingly. Most of the research shows that eighty percent of your work should be threshold or slower, twenty mm. percent intense. That's really interesting to me because, again, I can only compare it to what I know. On the sprinting side, um, what I'm balancing is this. The only way to run to run faster is by running faster. Mm-hmm. So you can't practice running slower to, to run faster. Mm-hmm. The balance of that is I can only do that a certain number of times per week, month, whatever. Um, like, basically, I've got one really strong speed day in me in, in a week. Hmm. Um, I used to have three. That was 30 years ago. Um, but, and, you know, maybe one and a half. Like, yeah. if I if yeah. I don't look at it on a weekly schedule, I can get maybe three good speed days in two weeks. And then the rest of the time, I've got to find something that's entertaining that's worth doing that isn't, frankly, going to train me to be running slower. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, a, it's, again, a fascinating thing to work on when yeah. I can feel my brain just wanting to have some prescriptive thing, but yeah. it just don't, isn't there. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Something else I noticed with sprinters that distance runners have trouble with is that between bouts, mm-hmm. you take time. Off. I mean. Lying yeah. down, hanging yeah. out, chatting, yeah. Yeah. gossiping. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's like, it's like lunch and then go oh, to no. another one. No, no. The, 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 the typical ratio is um, one minute off for every for every one second on. Okay. So if you're running all out and you do a 50-meter fly-in, you got five minutes off before you do another at least. Yeah. So it's sort of like because you want to recover as much as possible so that you can run as fast as possible the next time. Right. And um, yeah, um, when I'm on the track with distance runners, they're they're confused by two things. How much sitting around we're doing and that we're done so fast. Right. It's like we're just getting warmed up. It's like uh, we're going for breakfast. I don't yeah. know what you're up to. Yeah. It's a whole different way. Yeah. In fact, it was there was only there was one workout at the uh, the Fairview High School track where there was a bunch of the distance runners who were doing speed work. They were doing repeat 200 meters. And um, uh, and it just so happened that our timing overlapped. So they were doing 200s when I was doing 100s. And they would get to about 50-meter mark, and then I'd start, and then I would pass them. And these are, like, internationally ranked runners. And that's the first time they actually saw what we were doing. And mm. they came up to us like, oh, geez, you're fast. I said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they just never saw it because right. they were on the other side of the track. We were hanging out doing nothing. They, they thought we were just kind of literally just sitting on the track gossiping the whole yeah. time. They'd never yeah. seen us actually run. Um, it's interesting. It's good for distance runners to do this once in a while. I, oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it would hurt sprinters to go longer. As it's far not as strength, that, I mean, it would It's it not would that it would hurt. Strength, we just can't do it. Okay. It's literally, it's just, just, I mean, for, I think there's a psychological component where it's just so boring. We don't want to, but I think most of it's physiological. I mean, if I run slow enough, I could run some number of miles. Yeah. Oh my God. It's just so not interesting. And to run at any decent pace for miles, I, I, I can't do it. And I've never met a really good sprinter who's become a really good distance runner. Yeah. So I think it's just a whole different way of, yeah. Doing things because, like, you find a good sprint, a good um, uh, distance runner, and you have them run as fast as possible, and that's like a jog for any medium sprinter right. um, who has a whole different gear. So, it, I remember, um, have you been? I think it was the Portland Airport where they had was it Galen Rupp or someone? They had a big video thing along the the um, 
the walkway to the to the terminal were showing him running, and the whole idea was trying to keep up. And so it was really funny. Of course, it's, it's difficult because he's at race pace, right. and you have to catch up to that right. pace right. before you could do it. But I'd watch all these people like struggling, and you know, then a couple of us are sprinters, and we're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah. only for 100 meters. Exactly. <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah. Uh, at that pace, maybe 150, yeah. 200 tops. Yeah. But that's really yeah, it. Yeah. So a whole different thing. Yeah. Anyway, so we have Sorry. we had our three um, physical things, and then our six psychological things. Yeah. Right. Do you want to talk about the other physical things other than listening well, to your body? No. Consistency and variety, which is mm. what tends to get ignored. Mean, consistency is, yeah. Again, with, with with the barefoot and adapting, is you got to do it regularly. You yeah. can't you can't do it one day and, and not for, for six days wear your big although, pair of shoes. Although, well, you you know you can make the transition a little bit. Yeah. You find that you want to get out of big thick shoes, you know, yeah. sooner than you you would expect. But what people overlook when you're transitioning to some or learning some new movement pattern is that you don't learn it per se, by doing it, you learn it by doing it and then resting so that your brain can integrate the new movement pattern. The, new, the integration happens during the resting periods in between trying to do something. And when you're trying to do something, it's probably going to feel weird and awkward and stupid at first because that's what it feels like when you're laying down new neural pathways. And when people don't have that kind of frame of reference for what's going on, they'll get... F- they'll experience what they call frustration mm-hmm. and think that that means something's wrong instead mm-hmm. of, yeah, you're learning a new thing and that's the experience of learning a new thing. Yeah. And if you frame it that way, um, then it's kind of like, cool, because you'll notice the next time you go out, you're doing a little better, even though what you did in between was nothing. And people forget that. I think that's, I, I noticed that again, when I got back into sprinting, working with uh, a local coach who was teaching, actually, I worked with one coach who was a distance coach, distance coach, and he taught us how to do certain drills in a particular way. And then I met a guy who was a world champion sprinter. And he goes, yeah, you're doing them all wrong. You have to do them this other way. And it was, I felt so uncoordinated for maybe six weeks, but every time I went out, it was a little better, a little better until now it's second nature. But, but, um, were it not for the fact that I was seeing those little incremental changes, I would have hung it up because it was really frustrating uh, to try to learn something completely the opposite of what I had been doing for the two or three years previous. So anyway, frame of reference for how neuro- the neurological process of learning. Right. This is my undergraduate right. research was cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. Interesting. It's it's not dissimilar to muscular training it's the as same. well. I mean, you, totally you're, the same. You're, you're, Introducing something new, and then you're giving it time to adapt. It's right. absolutely right. the same. Right. Um, everything is about a bout of something followed by the rest and integration period. And for whatever reason, we just give short shrift to the rest and integration period, right. which anyone who does any of this stuff professionally, let's say, will tell you is the most important part. You talk to bodybuilders, what's the most important part of bodybuilding? Sleep. <laughs> it's like, wait, wait, what? It's like, yeah, you give yourself a stimulus, then you need to rest. Yeah. Yeah, same thing. Same thing. Let me ask, since you're a neuromuscular person, that I've heard that um, frequency is more important than duration. Volume. Volume is the gist of it. Volume. Yeah. But, which, but, but, but rather than like, like, like you've worked on balance, mm-hmm. rather than trying to hold it for two minutes. No, no, little bits. Little bits, exactly. Little bits. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and so, so the frequency is related to volume. Um, there was a study that I was just reading recently where they took people who were lifting weights three times a week and doing, let's say, you know, five different exercises for your chest during that workout. Uh, so, um, and it was, was it a whole body workout? I can't remember. 
what it was either way or uh, working out every day doing a full body workout every day where you only did like one exercise for each body part and what they found was that that was more valuable getting in the additional frequency and the additional volume um, over time rather than just in, in this shortened bursts and um, it's something that's it gets trickier as you get older and you need a little more recovery time or if you're doing if you're working out harder but the gist of it is that uh, volume is the important thing and if you can spread that out over more time, so you are doing more frequency. That's actually better, and because uh, you're you're not pushing so hard each time you do it, but you're accumulating more work over time. That makes sense. Yes, it, it actually does. Yeah. And and you know, for, and for me, it's more fun that way. We have um, some really cool exercise equipment in the in the back of our office. A thing called the K box, which is one of my favorite things. And what I love about it is it's so easy to use that every time I walk by it, I do a set of something. And it's just really fun that way. It also makes it feel less like like work than having to go to the gym and do a thing. It also seems to mean that then you're doing it well while you're doing it too. That, that when you yeah. try when you try to hold on to something, which again goes back to the minimal shoes too, is that you try to do too much of it, you end up doing Form it poorly. Down and, down, and that's when you get hurt, and right. it becomes no fun. That it, right. you do you do it well for a little bit of time and then rest and you do it well again <laughs> and, and that time can get longer the actually. hardest the hardest lesson for me when i got back in sprinting was when i would hear this voice in my head saying let's just do one more yeah and i it took me years to learn that that was the time to stop <laughs> that 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 last one that was really good you know go out on a good note yeah. instead of that one more was that was always going to be the time i got hurt yeah 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 uh so okay so, so the other principles yeah and i won't go through all of them uh, but the um the, one of the most important ones I call humble and hungry, which is really growth mindset. And, mm-hmm. and again, I stumbled upon it. I had these people who, you know, Olympians, masters, champions, uh, and always it became a litany. You know, I'd say, so tell me about your running. And they'd say, well, I started in school and, and I wasn't that good. I, I, I'm really not that good a runner. Oh, I was never wow. that good. I mean, across the board, that was almost the same words oh, that I, I, I was never that good, but I got better. Interesting. And, and that's what's important is that they, they weren't the humble is they they weren't the ones that said, oh, wow, I'm really good. And then, but, and they have to prove it all the time. But were they, were they not that good or were they humble about how good they were? Both. They typically okay. weren't, with some exceptions, some of them were, you know, setting school records at 12. Because I don't but, know one yeah. sprinter who wasn't the fastest kid in school. Yeah, well, that's because God gives you sprinting ability. <laughs> and and, and, and you, you can work on being a better participant. Well, yeah. well, that's, um, that's Ralph Mann's line. Ralph Mann says there's eight qualities for being a sprinter. Seven of them are genetic, and the eighth is yeah. how well you maximize your genetics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Choose your parents well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, having said that, they were they were good. There are okay. all of them. If you're, if you're going to have an Olympian, you obviously were were good. Right. But, but but they they weren't the one that from the beginning thought they were good, and because that leads to a, a mindset of I have to prove it all the time. You know, and, oh, and, interesting. And, and then and I've seen it. And coaches have have a lot to, to and parents have a lot to own for. Is that you know the, the, again the seventh grade girl who sets the school record. It is at more danger than than the one who came in fourth, but yeah. but is better than she was last week. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, but 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 I think a lot of it was a, a more mindset that they they had a, a, an awareness of how good other people are too, even mm-hmm. if they were really good. It's like okay, there's always potential for growth, and so and I think that's still now 
growth is tricky when you're 55, as you know. <laughs> and so those are the other, the, yeah, the uh, being able to adapt emotionally detached from, from we get, we get latched on to how was it last year? How was it last year? Or how, even, yeah. you know, it's like, well, if I can't run seven and a half minute miles, it's not worth going out to right. run. You know, if right. I can't, if I can't do an hour, if I can't, you know, to, 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 so to separate yourself from, from the judgments. I think about that. I, I wish I could remember what the world record is for the hundred years old uh, in the hundred meters, but it's something like, you know, 19 seconds or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. And like to, to wrap my brain around being happy <laughs> to be running at, you know, that speed um, is simultaneously unfathomable and super cool. It is super cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I would love to, I, I, I've been joke. I joke about it that when you go to a track meet, um, an open track meet, where it's people of all ages, people get really excited about the sprinters who are, you know, like 34 and under because they're super fast and then 75 and older because they're super old. And those of us in the middle, no one gives a crap about. <laughs> we just do it. And it's like, Hey, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No one cares. So one of the principles that wasn't in my initial hypothesis, um, I ended up calling hope and I came mm-hmm. about it. All these people who like diagnosed with cancer or diabetes or, you know, in a car wreck and rebuilt their knee, they should have stopped. Right. But they kept going. But I didn't, I thought, okay, how is this universal? And I, then I realized that it, it doesn't matter that whether they're that way or they're just 55 and out of shape because they had to spend six months at a new job. They believe that they could get better. I mean, and it actually, I was sitting down with a, with a former teammate up in, up in Maine and, and he, he's a coach and, and he sort of said, you know, well, I can't break 60 minutes for the total lock 10 miler anymore because I don't do 60 mile weeks. It's, it's not because he's 50, it's just because I don't do 60 mile weeks. Right. He, they have a hope that yeah, if yeah. I did this, I, I could yeah. get better. Well, yeah, of yeah. course. But, if, but, but that's yeah. an important principle. Most people, it, and it, it comes, um, learned optimism comes into play. Well, I was going to say, I, I yeah. like that you call it hope instead of um, uh, optimistic naivete. Exactly. <laughs> but, but but there is a whole research and learn. You've heard that term learned optimism yeah, yeah. using it as a tool. And so, you, 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 you go out for a run and you're trying as hard as you can and you're a minute slower than when you yesterday. The, the, the catastrophic pessimistic is... All right, I'm screwed. Right. I'm right. done. <laughs> you know, I, I'm old. I'm never going to be that fast again. You know, and learn optimism says, so what could it be? Well, I ate lunch a little bit late. <laughs> no, it's no. 80 degrees no, out. No. This is, at the end of a race, someone comes up and says, how'd you do? And my answer is, do you want it with or without the excuses? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do you just want a number or can I tell you all the things that I did yeah, subtly yeah. wrong? But we think yeah. of them as excuses too. We have to get over that. Some of the things aren't well, they, excuses. I, mean, I don't have a problem with it. But this is why this is why I find sprinting so fascinating yeah. is you can't get it perfect. You're never going to have everything work right. So there's always an excuse for why it didn't go well. But that's what makes it so addicting is that Absolutely. you want to try. You, you know, you think that you can. It's like going to Vegas. You know, yeah. you think there's if I only held the die a little different when I rolled it. <laughs> um, and and I like that. I mean, I and I, I like it because I'm aware that it's completely irrational and stupid. But what the hell? I mean, it's yeah. just I find that very enjoyable. Well, it's very interesting to me that. You feel that way about sprint because I feel like sprint is like it either goes well or not. I mean, like a marathon, there are so many variables that you never get them all right. So, right. so I'm never going to get bored of the marathon unless well, I decide that you know. Right now, if I I ran a 2:46 once. Now, if I run a 3:30, I'll be really happy. If I decide that's not worthwhile, then I'll get bored of it. But if that's the best I can do with all the variables I have in my life right now. How, how do I maximize those? For sprinting, you basically have three thoughts. Um, at the start, like before, right before the gun goes off, there's no thinking, which I find incredibly enjoyable. The gun goes off and the thought is basically 
drive, which means stay low and push. Okay. And then the second thought is um, stand up and kind of move into whatever the maximum velocity is. So it's this sort of it's like a plane taking off is the image in my mind. And then at about the 70 meter mark, the thought is hold on. Yeah. And that's it. That's, that's it. Get. That's it. Yeah. But it all has to go right, perfectly and it, and right. It, and it's fractions of a second. Yeah, and it yeah, never yeah. does. That makes sense. I can yeah. see that. Um, and then, and the trickiest part, the hardest thing in sprinting is when there's someone right in front of you, just like six inches in front of you. The hardest, the other thought you get then is don't try to catch him. So if you want, you need to stay in your own thing. Um, and, uh, that thought is probably the hardest because when there's someone right there, you want to work harder. And that's the last thing that's going to be helpful. Um, so you get that thought sometimes too. There was, there was, uh, one guy who was, he was 10 years younger than me and he was always like just slightly ahead of me. I said, do you mind that I have you and my sights that, you know, you're the thing I'm working with? And he goes, no, because having you right behind me scares the crap out of me. And so that helps me too. So we had a really great relationship <laughs> that's with awesome. that. Yeah, it was fun. That is cool. So what else you got? We got oh. hope. We got hope. Oh, oh we got, okay. Uh, well, but there's a, there's a few practical ones like, like make other connections with the sport so, so that you, there's co you're a coach or you're uh -uh. a writer or you're, so you, you have other people that you are seeing. It's not all internal and you stay in connection, you know, when you're injured, when you do transition. Um, the, the last one is understandably love. The, the people, they actually love doing it and they love both. It, it's not people think that either you're a runner or you're a competitor. Almost all of them that survived are both and they mm. feed off each other. The, the, the runner loves to be out there, which makes them fit enough. And, to, and, and they put a race out there so they run more and they like that, you know, and then and the competitor. So those, those go together. But the, the real, the, I think, you know, so the crux of the story at the end, how do you survive? Um, this guy was talking about, he does this relay race up in Northern Maine. Um, and one year he got the leg with Abel Hill, um, which is like this, mile long hill but it was in the middle of the night and nobody else was around <laughs> and he was just running he just and he he was thinking about to get to the hill he think i'm about to get to the hill and all of a sudden he heard voices and somebody was saying we should go back and help him get up the hill and he realized i just ran up Abel hill <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that's cool. where we need to learn how to be is is it's all about again all about proprioception it's all about being aware of what's on there rather than having external markers. I mean, you're not, you're not seeing the hill and how far is left to go to go. You're not seeing somebody else go up. You're not trying to keep the same pace on it. You're adapting to this is the situation right now. Where am I in life right now? And how can I do my best? There's a, a fun, again, I'm, all yeah. I can do is relate it back yeah. this way. So um, I met a track meet and uh, there's a guy who's in the lane next to me who's like six four. 5% body fat, you know, six years old, totally taking something to get that way. And, uh, and he looks at me like really, really seriously. He goes, he's like, have a good race. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, there's no money at the end of this, right? It's just, you know, this is just for fun. So a, uh, have a good time and get to the end healthy. And B, I totally want to kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and, and that's yes. the reason that I like it is, yes. is that you've got both of those going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Like, this is totally fun. And part of the fun is I'm going to try and kick your butt. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and if, and if it doesn't work, I mean, that's really motivating. And I like, that's one of my favorite parts is that when someone does beat me and it happens, um, uh, it's, it's motivating. And sometimes I, there's the excuse of that guy's retired. He's training every day. And sometimes is, you know, that guy's a genetic freak and he was an yeah. Olympian and whatever it is, but it's still motivating. And I just realized that the reason that I like that for me is it something that I do to people. 
Mm. So when I'm at high school track meets, um, which also sounds a little freaky when I say it that way, because they have timing and so I can get a, a, an yeah. official electronic timing, um, I'll find someone who did well. And I will, who uh, ideally someone who did well, who I beat. Because I will beat a lot of the high school athletes, especially the ones who are um, uh, junior, sophomores and juniors. Yeah. And I'll walk up to them and go, I'm older than your dad. Oh, yeah. And I do it because I want to see if that makes them upset or if that makes them want to fight me. And if they want to <laughs> fight me, if, they, if that motivates them, like I want to hang out with that kid. Yeah. I want to you know, work with him and, find, and, and do things where we push each other. And it's a whole lot of fun. If it's the one who's like, oh, I, I remember meeting a kid who wanted to be a decathlete, he said. And I said, when I was your age, um, my friends and I, we were doing a thousand pushups a day. We we're as gymnasts. He goes, I can't do a thousand pushups a day. I said, yeah, neither could we when we started. And we didn't do a thousand at a time. We did a hundred ten times a day. Mm-hmm. And he just got really depressed. And I walked away thinking, you're not going to be a decathlete. No. If no. you were a decathlete, you would have dropped and done 50 right in front of me. Right. And, I, you know, right. I, I just love that. It's just that, so much fun. And that's fun. that growth mindset. It's sort of, it's like, wow. I could do that. I, yeah. I can work towards it. That's a challenge. That's yeah. something to, to aspire to, not I can't do it now and I never will. Well, yeah. and what the reason we did it is our coach gave us a piece of graph paper, like the first day of gymnastic practice. And he said, every square on that graph paper is 10 push-ups. First one to come filling the entire thing front and back gets a Coke. <laughs> and we were like, you know, we'd come in in the morning. It's like, how many push-ups do you do? 200. Damn it, I only did 100. And we'd just like be fighting each other all day long. Awesome. And we got crazy strong awesome. really fast because um, we were a bunch of, you know, insanely competitive yeah. little kids. It was yeah. entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. How, much, how much of those things that you've identified are just sort of innate, inherent versus things that people can actually learn or adopt or become or whatever that is how much of it is just the way it is and how much of it is something that is whatever the word is i'm looking for for you know a thing you can change fungible that's Uh, not actually it but that's not it that's one of my life's favorite words fungible is a great word i used it totally inappropriately just then but i I like fungible um i think all of them i I think people are predisposed some ways, you know, to be pessimistic or optimistic. But I I think, I think learned optimism and learned growth mindset is is entirely possible. Um, And learned uh, feel, I don't know what the word for that is, uh, you know, proprioceptive uh, in a way you could say, I mean, both, both proprioceptive of your body, which is what we're talking about with, with, or proprioceptive of, of recovery and, and effort levels and all that, I, all, all, the, all of that to learn. I think, the, I think, I think those are the ones that are most learnable. I think some of the other ones are, I mean, there's probably some amount of variation, but probably not like some the, max amount. The hope and the, and the growth and the, yeah. and the hungry. But I, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm also, yeah, I'm curious about um, how much. I mean, I, you identified those. I'm also curious about the outliers or the ones that are the the exact opposite who are still performing well or still doing well. I'm always I'm always just intrigued by that. I know that whenever if you look at like the entire domain of personal development or business development, how to be a su- in, successful in business, all of this is hindsight bias. And whenever someone comes up with some theory of here's what it takes, you can find at least as many people on the other side who are the exact opposite who've right. done just as well. Right. Um, but again, we like to have a Absolutely. thing that we can hold on to that we think will get us 
to what we think we need and then be happy, which is, you know, just, it's, I, I like to say, um, when people hit me up about, you know, going to some leadership program or whatever, I say, um, so who are some of the leaders that you admire? And they'll say, well, you know, there's Bill Gates and there's, um, Richard Branson and they'll name all these people. And, I, and I'll say, you know, none of them ever took a leadership course, right? You know, Freud wasn't a psychologist, psychologist, right? He made right. that shit up. Right. Um, and people are like, well, but don't you think you need, it's like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> no, I have no idea. Yeah. It, I, I hope it helps people just, again, again, similarly to the physical of learning awareness, yeah. just, just able to think about things in a different way. It certainly helped me to go, go through it. And it was a critical point in my life. I wrote it when I was 52 or 53, you know, and, and to see, I mean, I wrote an essay afterwards about, um, about running against the wind. I live out in Western Nebraska and, and how, you know, for a decade, I raged against the wind and just, I hate it, you know, and I realized the only reason it's hard is that I don't acknowledge that it's real. Yeah. And I think of it, yeah, so slowing down being, is, it's getting in your is, way is, instead exactly. of just, Oh, that's really interesting. And, 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 and I had to make peace with the wind before I could make peace with age because age is the wind that you know, roars down the ages, <laughs> never slows and never lets up. You can't wait till it goes. Thanks. Away. You just depressed the crap out of me. <laughs> I'm going to go have ice cream for dinner. So I'll probably have pancakes for dinner. No, um, but, but accepting it says I can still, I can still do everything I did before. I just have to, to change the the measurements. Somebody somebody asked me for a documentary years ago. They said, "What will it be like if you get to a point where you can't run?" And I I spent probably three minutes just staring blankly at the ground. <laughs> and I said I said that's the most depressing thing anyone's ever said to me. But but I but I have been thinking lately as I've been yeah. now ten years past that point. Um, like you know what are the things that I'm going to want to do? What will I find? that will replace that or be interesting or that I'll come to grips with or whatever it is. And, or I think about, uh, you know, I have my spine is basically broken. If it gets to the point where I really can't run, run, mm -hmm. will it be satisfying to just do the best that I can? And um, I don't know, honestly, I have yeah. no, no idea until I get there. I'm hoping that I'll be able to find satisfaction in that or something else. Look, it took me, I went from 32 till 45 till I found running again because I was trying all these other things after I stopped being a gymnast because I'd blown out my knee and that was never going to happen again. Um, you know, finding running again was a, a sprinting was a very big deal. And the, those other things didn't work. Actually, you know, I just re realized what it is. Um, I tried something else recently that I haven't done since I was 15, maybe even, maybe 12, uh, archery. Mm -hmm. And it, it, the reason that I like it is this one of the same reasons I like sprinting, intermittent reinforcement. You can never do it perfectly. Yeah. And that is so addicting that I, and, and I just don't want to be that guy who walks in and buys a really expensive bow that he doesn't deserve to shoot yet. <laughs> um, but other than that, I mean, you know, there's always going to be a something that where those, I think those principles apply yeah. as we're, as we're getting older. What else did you notice that changed for you after you kind of coalesced these ideas and principles? Something very recent. I, I told you that I uh, I broke a fifth metatarsal. Uh, just for fun. As if, yeah. <laughs> I, I just thought, why not break a foot uh, and see what happens? Wearing maximalist shoes. <laughs> did, you, did you fall off? An, uh, I fell off the shoe, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Lack of proprioception and a lot of a lot of distance. Once I came, went over, I just kept going. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I haven't had every time I've been injured. In the past, it's always been this lack of this loss of identity, this feeling of I, I'm no longer a runner. I'll ever be back. I haven't felt that. I mean, I, I've missed it, but right. it's, it's sort of, yeah, 
okay, it'll heal. I'll be back. Right. Um, and and again, I think it, it's a gained perspective from, from again, all these people that I talked to that have had much worse and, and all back. of them. I mean, and all, none of them go a year without having something that right. sets them back for a bit. And then and, you come back and I'll run again. And, and will I run as fast as I did a year ago? Well, no, because I'm going to be older. But can I, can I still work and get a lot better and run effortlessly and, and freely? Yeah, mm. I know I will. When I first got back into sprinting, anytime I got injured, it was just, it just destroyed me. Yeah. And now if I get, you know, some little thing, it's like, ah, I'm out for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you, you know, you, and you're still your sprinter. You're still a runner. Oh, yeah. E- even if I can't do it right now, it doesn't mean I'm not, that, yeah, yeah. That I'm not the thing anymore. Yeah. Any, anything else that changed for you or that you seem to notice differently? <clears throat> the training by feel, uh, I adopted pretty quickly and I, I think when i first started researching this i was still pretty much tied to training schedules uh, you know, oh interesting particularly um i think volume and you, you talk about those elements like you have to get up in each of those elements every week you know make right. sure and and realizing giving myself permission to to increase as i as i felt like an increase, you know, knowing that I wanted to, you can't, sure. you can't give yourself excuse, but also, and then also just to, for speed work, it's like, I don't have to do three miles worth of 200s, you know, the first time, right? do eight of them and, and until, until they stop being fun. Right. And then, and then the next time you do 12, you know, and, and, and that's so logical, but, but so many people, that's a lot of master runners get hurt is, is you Absolutely. do, here's the workout. This is, this is how I trained for a marathon in 1998, you know, and I'm going to do it again. Right. <laughs> it's like, no, the, I think one of the trickiest things about that though, is what you said, I'll do it till it's not fun. And part of what's fun is that pushing that one extra thing. Right. And, um, there's something satisfying about that, that, uh, you got to find your relationship with that. Yeah, and and for and, most, and you don't want to push yeah. to the edge, but not not the extra one. <laughs> not the extra one. No, I, I think about that. I, I think about that a lot um, because it used to be twenty, thirty years ago that pushing to the point where you know you can't get off the ground. I mean, that's really a thing, and that's that's just. I guess what it is is that the that that the the if you will the limit that you're pushing to or the, the there's something where you're just moving the goalpost a little bit you're still pushing hard um but it's just a matter of, of moving what that target is so you're not doing something stupid anymore and at, at you know at 20 you could be stupid that's that's sort of the, that's what it feels like on my end um and man other than that it's kind of tricky yeah good um, stuff. I, I want to totally change the topic in just yeah. a minute or two we have left, or a couple minutes we have left absolutely you spent a lot of time in your career uh, exploring, reviewing, analyzing, paying attention to footwear. Yeah. In that time, what have you, what's changed? What have you discovered? What have you learned? Where are you kind of landing now about the whole gamut of footwear? That's a hugely overly broad thing, but yeah. I think you know where I'm going. Yeah. I'm actually not trying to go anywhere. I'm really <laughs> kind of curious from your perspective. Well, I mean, in, in the time that I was actually reviewing shoes. So, I mean, I, I, I've been fascinated by shoes since, again, since 1977. And, and I used to be the guy that, that I've worn every model and I, I'd buy them at the closeout, the year old ones, you know, the, <laughs> for $45. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so I've, I've, I've seen the, the Nike sock racer come and go and, and, and various different torsion control things mm-hmm. and, and plates and, uh, firm shoes and soft shoes. And, but, um, yeah, beginning reviewing was, was like 1998 
and and which I think was the most boring shoes ever, you know, belt. Every shoe was an A6 GT2000, you right. know. It had a 12 millimeter drop, it had heel counter, it had a medial post. I mean, that was a running shoe. That, right. that, that, I mean, if you ask me to draw a running shoe, that's what it was. So uh, I found minimalism a breath of fresh air. Regard, in fact, I don't even call it minimalism, I call it the great disruption. Oh, interesting. <laughs> because well, lots of things happened. People finally started to say, I mean, the research was there actually oh, yeah. for, for a long, long time before. before that. Yeah, yeah. But, but and I don't know what the convergent factors was, but people actually started saying, this doesn't, this isn't right. I mean, this is all based on, on fear and false paradigms that, 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 that this will actually control your foot and, so, and solve injuries and all that stuff. But so. why do you think, <clears throat> I mean, two things. One is it, it was a big disruption when the whole barefoot and minimalist thing kicked in. Yeah except for the fact that for the first 99.995% of human footwear history, everything was minimalist. So yes. this is not the intervention. The intervention yes. is the, quote, modern athletic shoe. But, excuse me, the research has been there. The research continues to be there supporting natural movement. Why do you think the you know there was this big rush of interest um, misplaced in, in many ways. Why do you think that there's still a seeming fight? And let me, before you answer, say in other parts of the world, this fight doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. In Europe, people totally believe the idea of natural movement. In certain parts of Southeast Asia, people totally believe in this. And there's not an argument about it. Why do you think uh, America, people still think there's an actual debate about the value of natural movement? Well, partly is, is the culture um, number of things in the culture. One is equipment matters. Um, and when somebody starts running, the first thing they're told is get a, go get a good supportive running shoe. Supportive. Yes. So there is, there's that, 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 that you have to have this equipment or else you're going to get hurt to me. But I guess my it's point like, is so, so that message, which is a 50 year old lie is still pervasive. Still, I'm curious, obviously my yeah. goal, not, not because I'm, you know, CEO of zero shoes, but because I'm, I'm concerned about natural movement, and I don't like when people uh, make a living by lying to other people. I don't like when people are under the umbrella of mythology and propaganda to their detriment. And that's the way I see footwear as being uh, problematic. So, you know, it's, it's very compelling for me to try to um, pull the rug out from underneath what's common wisdom and it's neither and it may be common but it's certainly not wise so when people when someone does walk into a shoe store and the advice they're getting is the same advice despite the evidence despite the research i guess the question is why do you think that's still happening my theory on that is that running is difficult for a lot of people for some a lot of the reasons we talked about that they they are they are compromised and and not able to run effectively right now mm -hmm. or they need they need time whether it's weight or some of the yeah glutes that are firing and shoulders that are rotated and feet that are have been been in what we're that's turned them off and so whether or not it's true they want something they, mm -hmm. they want something that allows them to run and, well, and, and they're and i'm going to rephrase that yes it sounds like what you're describing is that that there's, let's say, a fundamental idea that there is an external solution to what they're perceiving as a Absolutely. problem. It's a, it's, it's a pill right. or, a, or a prosthetic or, right. a, you know, it, yes, it's so, as well. So yeah. arguably then one of the fundamental issues is that for whatever reason we've, as a society, developed this idea uh, that there is a panacea out there that is the solution without us having to do anything or it will do it for Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. So, and 
coupled with that is a belief in cushioning and comfort that that that's oh, that's geez. better that 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 everything plush is better. That one floors me. Yeah. Our developer Dennis, his analogy is: if someone said drop on the ground and you know do twenty push-ups, do you want to do it on the floor? Or do you want to do it on a Tempur-Pedic mattress? And it's like, well, the floor. It's like, well, what are you trying to put your shoes in a Tempur-Pedic or your feet in a Tempur-Pedic mattress for? And and the biggest thing is watching all that cushioning, how fast it breaks down, and people don't seem to get that. So I, I, let me and, let, and it removes proprioception. It, yeah, you can't feel anything. You from the right, ground. Yeah, right. Yeah. You can't do the thing that your body's designed to do. Yeah. So let me try this from a different perspective. And again, some of this is undeniably self-serving, but yeah. other uh, some another part of this is totally academic. What do you think it would take to, in the same way that people changed or the mentality changed to think that the modern athletic shoe is what you need. You need motion control. You need arch support. You need cushioning. You need padding. You need to feel like you're, you know, you're in a, on a temper memory foam mattress. What do you think it would take for a, to make the shift for people to go back to what we were doing for thousands of years to natural movement? Well, if I knew the answer to that, <laughs> I'd be I'd be a lot richer than you and me. Perhaps, right? um, well, maybe. I do. I mean, one thing I see again as a coach is you just you got to get you, you get kids uh, on. I mean, they, the first day, you know, they go out and do a three mile run. They come back to the football field, and I say, "Everybody, shoes off!" And they look at me like, "Really?" And then they take the shoes off, and they say, "Your socks off too? Really? I have to take my socks off too?" Yeah. And I said, "How's that feel?" And then we go and we do diagonals. I mean, and but within within two weeks they're looking forward to it, you know, and then and then they're doing it by themselves. I have a crazy and, question. Do you know if it's if it's illegal to be barefoot in school? A lot of places it is. is yes. It? And I had I, I had one kid who wanted to run barefoot at the state cross country course, right. and that was illegal. Illegal, illegal. Like, I mean, we, we, well, he not, couldn't you know, have, not illegal, but, but he they, he was disqualified. Fascinating. Yeah. I actually you just reminded me, Lena's niece got in a cross country, was wearing our sandals and had to sign like this multi-page waiver to be able to run cross country in sandals, which I just found utterly stunning. It's like, have you not read Born to Run? Have you, do you not get this at all? But they thought it was a big liability thing. It's like, do you know that your other athletes are still getting injured even though they're wearing their shoes? Have you, do you not get how that works? So it's funny. I, I keep, uh, the closest thing you're going to get to barefoot other than barefoot is something like our, our Genesis right. sandal, which is just, you know, super thin. Right. And you could arguably wear those. I'm, I'm flashing back to, again, as a gymnast, the thing that we got in the habit of doing was in class kicking off our shoes and putting our, rolling our toes under the ground, basically pointing your toes to get used to pointing your toes. Not only do you want them running in something, what? Most runners, they're going to have this huge cramp by doing that. Oh, funny. Oh, interesting. You roll, you roll your, oh, really? You roll your curls down and, and they're going to cramp up. How come? You don't do that? No. Like 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 child's pose even, you know, just, just, yeah, yeah. just putting that, your foot backwards and, and cramp because That causes cramping? Yes. Really? <laughs> I, I had no idea, obviously. <laughs> Fascinating. Why would that be? Because you're trying you're not you're not doing it under load. You're just it's just it's not even a stretch. You're no, just No, I think it's a it's a neuro it's a it's a nerve thing that they oh, just haven't been in that position. Oh, 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 that would make sense. And, and, um, and so the, 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 the nerve is just being... The Achilles and the, and the, and the oh, interesting. intrinsic muscles are all going, whoa, what are well, we you doing know, here? Yeah. Well, actually, if I do that now again, so 
for the sake of saying it, because I brought up my spine a couple of times, I have a grade two L5S1 spondylolisthesis. And for people who are going to then recommend various ways of curing that, it's also got a, a PARS defect. So the muscles aren't connected to the vertebrae. So there's nothing holding it in place. If I curl my toes that way, they won't necessarily cramp, but I can't undo them sometimes. It takes like a while till they unwind. So what you're describing is sort of a, an, an analog to that. But I had already had the, the, the nerve flexibility. Hmm. Now I'm trying to work on the nerve flexibility the other way around, actually, mm-hmm. so that it's not putting so much strain in the other direction, which I didn't have, which is that's very interesting. So, but I keep thinking, like, yeah. what's the thing to, to for kids, yeah. so that so that by the time they're whatever age, they've had so much experience with natural movement that anything else is just seems absurd. I mean, they're I I, I guess to your point, they're going to be the drivers of this. It's going it's a generational are, thing. But they have to given given. Reason to. I mean, right. I mean, as you know, parents put kids in, in two inch shoes before they can walk. So, so the question, the question really becomes, how do we make this cool and so cool that kids want to do it as an act of rebellion? <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm hacking no, this no, out, you're right. but I mean, really, and, and I think there's a there there for that. Uh, and I don't know that we need to go start as young as, you know, what we're talking about for little kids. But I think, I, I think you're onto it. And, and this is something we've talked about a lot. And we used to see this when we first started. We'd sell a do-it-yourself kit to the barefoot runner parent who just read Born to Run. And then a week later, we'd see an order for the rest of the family. Most of them were small kids, which was very satisfying. I'm hoping that we can bypass that, that there's a way of speeding up this process thanks to the magic of the internet and social media and just how interconnected things are and how messages move in a way that they didn't before. Because if we have to wait for an entire generation, this is a 25, 30 year project. I, I don't know if I've got 25 or 30 years in me, but I, I want to see this happen. Yeah. And I'm not, and, and, you know, my fantasy is that the big shoe companies, they know this is legit. I mean, or let me say it this way. I have reason to believe that they know that this is legit. Do you think that's true? I do. And we talked about this earlier. I do think I see improvement. I mean, it, yeah, but, but, but if the improvement is just being a little lighter or a little less padding, we know that that's not actually a real that, that, improvement. That, that, which is up, actually could be more could detrimental. Be worse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For example, getting over my metatarsal fracture, it's worse that wearing these is softer right. than wearing a lightly cushioned shoe. I, right. I either need something that's totally immobilizing it or go down to this because, yeah, yeah. because again, yeah, proprioception. Is, yeah. 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 But, but I mean, less heel toe drop, but much less motion control, you know, triple density shoes that are, so, so at least the foot is, is starting to move somewhat. Yeah. A little, yeah. I mean, I guess what that says to me is that they do believe in it and they can't go there yet. Or they won't go there, or they can't ever. Some combination, but I mean, well, the consumer is not going there yet. I was on this panel discussion with the American College of Sports Medicine, and uh, Irene Davis says to the panel, "So in the '60s, we're running in super thin-soled running shoes. We're playing basketball in Chuck Taylors. We weren't seeing the kind of injuries or the type or severity of injuries we're getting now, or the right. number. You know, what problem were you trying to solve, and why didn't it work?" And there's a long pause, and then I say, "The more you understand about feet, and the more you look at the research." You can't conclude anything other than the modern athletic shoe was simply wrong. And there's a guy at the end of the, the table for me from Adidas who said, yeah, but not everyone's going to switch to your shoes right away. And I thought, well, that's true because it's going to take some time for people to get the hint. But it strikes me that there's a like a, a critical mass where suddenly it's going to tip, where suddenly the tide will turn, where suddenly there will be enough people who've had the experience of natural movement that 
it's going to, it, it will become the obvious thing to do. And if it's going to be driven by kids or by driven by their parents or who knows, I, I have no idea, but I'm hoping that that adoption curve is accurate. And, and that what it means at a certain point is not that we make Nike go away or we make Adi go away, but that they, that they realize that they can actually make a, a wholesale shift to the right thing. Cause that's what I care about. I would love to be, uh, I'm going to, I'm getting teary thinking about this. I would love to be part of the people who made a wholesale shift to something that's better for humanity. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if people know I had anything to do with it. Or not. <laughs> I could be dead by then. I don't know, but I, but, but I, but this is important. And I, and I, I hope that what we're doing is pushing that. And it seems like it is when we're at certain trade shows, we're seeing people who are kind of heading this way and using the language that I came up with. And so I, I hope that that's the case, but I know there's vested interests who are not interested in that. And I just uh, had the idea that given what you've done, you have more insight into what's happening over in the evil empires. <laughs> than <I do. laughs> yeah. And, and what I would say is that a lot of great people who, who think they're giving people what they want. They are giving people what they want. And, and the, the, only because they taught them that's what they want. Yeah. But these people didn't. Well, the, right. The generation before them did. But, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. what I mean. Some, yeah. So, yeah, and, their predecessors and, and taught them. And there are, there's, okay, and maybe you disagree with this, but some of this, you, I know you disagree with this, but there are people who can't just, no, but you can't just put on the shoe and, oh, go, no, and no. go out and do a 10 mile. Oh, no, absolutely. Look, I don't it, think... it, it, it does allow them. I... The, 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 the belief is has some truth. Okay, look, look, I, look, I have an analogy for this. Okay. It, it allows them to go out and run. Yeah. And they're safe. But, okay. but, but for like a psychological thing is like if you're raising your son and you never want him to get hurt emotionally, so you make sure he doesn't interact with anybody else. <laughs> and so he's he's this stunted not a full life right person but he's never hurt emotionally that's right. sort of what we're doing you're saying it allows them to do it but in a way that's long term detrimental because it because they're going to get hurt and yeah. they and they, they don't have the full experience well this is the full thing, expression well this is the thing of course is so funny is just because you're wearing a thick padded motion controlled shoe doesn't mean you're not going to get some injury people say hey i got injured wearing a minimalist shoe it's like yeah but what's the injury rate comparatively if people switching if someone switches to a minimalist shoe Correctly, they're not just going to suddenly just switch shoes and go out for a run. In the same way that if you're just going from you know an Adidas shoe to a Nike shoe, you're not going to just switch shoes and go run a marathon. People will say well, you got to get used to the shoe. Same thing here. If you're going to switch intelligently, you know what's the injury rate for people who've made an intelligent switch versus the injury rate for people who've never switched? And that's the, those are the statistics that we don't have. And I my contention is that if we have those statistics, we would find that the injury rates are better for people who are doing natural movement. It it just seems screamingly obvious for so many reasons. But not surprisingly, the money that it would take to do that research isn't available because typically that money comes from the big shoe companies. <laughs> so I, that's, I, I, in right. many ways, Lena and my second hope is that we actually do get enough resources, enough capital, that on the one hand, we can sponsor that research. On the other hand, if we do, people are going to assume that it works in our favor because we put up the money. So I, I'm trying to find the right way that we can encourage the continued conversation. Because look, if it turned out that natural movement wasn't good for people, which just seems absurd considering how long people were doing this, I'd be the first one to say it because I'm not interested in trying to be right for the sake of being right. I'm interested in being helpful. And and really, I guess to a certain extent, 
have people have the same experience I had where I went from being a continuously injured runner to becoming a not predominantly not injured runner who got faster, stronger, had more fun, enjoyed this and is living this lifestyle 24 seven because it's enjoyable and it's valuable. And, you know, uh, anyway, I could go on forever as I, <laughs> why I'm doing this. So I hope you're right. Jonathan, absolute pleasure. As always, you know, we can have these conversations forever. Someday on the cover of your book, it will have someone in a shoe that I actually like. And uh, I've seen worse. I've seen worse. Anyway, (laughs) total pleasure. Thank you all for being part of this conversation. Again, if you want to continue or find out more and be part of the movement movement, go to jointhemovementmovement.com. If you have any questions or any comments, or if you have anyone that you think should be on the show, drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. And as always, spread the word. Go there and you'll find out how you can like and share and subscribe and click the bell if you're on YouTube. You know how to make things more popular. Do that. And as I like to say, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. But most importantly, go out and enjoy yourself and live life feet first. You've been listening to the Movement Movement Podcast with host Stephen Sashin. Remember to join the tribe and subscribe at jointhemovementmovement.com.